0: Hello and welcome to the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on the markets and helps you make smart choices with your investments. These are entirely our own views and that of our guests. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. Joining me today is Ben Powell. Ben is BlackRock's Asia Pacific Chief Investment Strategist, and he's my regular guest when we need to talk about the global financial markets. And between inflation, central banks raising interest rates, share market slumping, and the conflict in Ukraine, we sure have a lot to talk about today. So welcome back, Ben, and and sorry to sorry to only call you when I need a hand on a problem. We're here to help to be great to be with you, and hopefully we can uh, um, shed some light and uh, try to be useful for uh, for all the listeners here uh, here today. Yeah, exactly. It's. Um, A lot of people are worried about the conflict in Ukraine, and that's understandable from all sorts of angles. And we'll get onto that later in the recording. But let's start with what's been um, keeping us busy this morning and uh, with fixed interest markets and your thought of the US uh, Fed delivering its uh, first rate hike since what's 2018. It seemed to me that the hike itself was very well signalled, so no surprises there. But what did you think of the move, and also the signals the Fed is providing on the outlook for its policy settings on on US interest rates?
1: Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. So, so like you, I thought the the, the hike itself was uh, was fine, right? But I think, as you say, very well telegraphed a very well signaled. For, for us, uh, the more interesting bit uh, for me, the more interesting bit was the uh, how many they're going to do overall, right? Where they're going to end up at the end of the uh, uh, hiking cycle, which uh, I guess we call the terminal rates, right? So, wh- how high are they going to get to? So, the Fed has now uh, fairly uh, radically transformed their view of how high they want to go through the cycle, up to something like three uh, percent. So, from you know close to zero uh, and uh, lots of quantitative easing to QT, uh, quantitative tightening, and you know moving up to three percent over the next uh, couple of years uh, is pretty meaningful. So, so you know that has any number of implications. Uh, for the portfolio that we can get into CCB, And also, you know, we also question uh, if they can get there, given the likely uh, downdraft that will cause for, uh, for for the economy, of course, but but more importantly for employment and, uh, and the social kind of downside of uh, uh, accidentally over-tightening, I guess, or deliberately over-tightening, maybe. Uh, maybe it helps with inflation, but it does have a trade-off in the world of uh, employment. Uh, so uh, uh, for us, we don't think they'll get to three. We think they are too ambitious, as it were. Uh, we think maybe two, two and a quarter is where they'll end up. But I think that's kind of the key conversation. I don't know what you think, CTB, but the, the 25 basis point hike is, of course, important and interesting. But it's the how many are they going to do overall that
0: I think is the maybe the crux of uh, uh, the matter, at least. Uh, that's how we're uh, we're thinking about it. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I think when we talked about central banks over the past six months, we have thought economies are, are recovering and it's time to start removing some of the stimulus that's being provided around the world. And that leads on to a conversation about, well, where do you think neutral rates are going to be for the economy and, and what sort of level of... Um, increases uh, do you expect? And the conversation was generally along the lines of central banks will want to keep giving growth a chance, but just start to slowly remove some of the stimulus. But whereas now it feels like, apart from, say, the Reserve Bank of Australia, banks are really looking at tightening the economy and slowing growth to reduce some of this inflation pressure. The the Fed's growth forecasts were lower within today's detail as, as well. And that same sort of chat's happening here in New Zealand we've lifted our expectations of where we think the Reserve Bank will lift the cash rate, for example. So that leads and perhaps um, points to what you might think with my next question is, um, What are your thoughts on the current pricing of longer-term fixed interest investments? Uh, You know, 10-year government bonds are a good place to start as a reflection of very long-term views on where interest rates are going to be in the economy. And a number of investors are asking how long the pain will continue in their bond portfolios because they're obviously sensitive to it. So how do you feel like, if we did a a trip around the big central banks, um, thinking of the Fed, the Bank of England, Germany. Um, How do you think 10-year bonds are trading these days in terms of a reflection on those central bank outlooks? I think the pain's going to continue, uh, simply put. So so just to uh, enumerate the
1: pain, I mean, I think this is an amazing stat, so get ready. The the US 30-year Treasury, in round numbers, is down its price, right? Price, because that's uh, important for an asset you own in the portfolio. The price of the US 30-year Treasury is down a little bit more than 30% uh, over the last uh, couple of years, which is remarkable. And So, so we can all agree that the uh, US uh, Treasury is likely to repay you, and therefore, it is a risk-free asset, right? You're going to get repaid principal and coupon, So it is risk-free. But from a price perspective, that's some pretty hairy volatility, which uh, you know, uh, can't be ignored, we would suggest. So given we think inflation is going to hang around a bit. Uh, for reasons we can get into if you're interested. And given the broad direction of yields is going to be, we think, higher over time, maybe, you know, we're talking about the 10-year, you asked me a specific question. So I don't think the US 10-year yield is going to move dramatically higher from here, more of a grind. But still, for choice, the yield is higher, uh, which is to say price is going to go lower. So I think in terms of when you look at, you know, your monthly statement and you look at the price of uh, developed market government bonds, Ah, uh, clearly they can still play an important part of the portfolio, but for us, uh, developed market government bonds uh, are just swimming against the tide. Right, we're in a we're in a, a hiking uh, regime, I guess, moving forward, driven by this uh, higher inflation, which is going to persist. Uh, and you know, it's kind of nobody's fault. It's just a fact, and it's inconvenient for for DM bonds. So for us, you know, within the bond uh, uh, bit, I guess, of the portfolio, uh, we're all going to have to be and this is hard, you know, I, I fully understand this, but we're all going to have to be a little bit more uh, kind of creative, I suppose, in where we source income. Maybe we have to look further afield by geography, by asset class or whatever, uh, where we source income, and also where we source kind of ballast within the portfolio, you know, having that kind of safe haven thing, because uh, as I mentioned, uh, and by the way, you know, picking the 30-year treasury is, uh, I've done it on purpose because that's the most volatile, right? So, you know, if you come Ah, uh, closer in, the price moves are less dramatic., uh, we should be clear about that. I should be clear about that. But nonetheless, I, I do think there is downside price risk uh, for developed market government bonds uh, which is uh, going to persist. and that's, um, as I say, something we think needs to be taken seriously uh, and therefore adjusted in the portfolio uh, accordingly, which is a an overly long way to of saying, we still think, as I've said on this uh, this podcast before, we should all be owning fewer developed market government bonds than would have been historically normal because there is, uh, we think, still, even after the fairly dramatic price falls that we've seen, we still think there's price downside uh, to come from here because because yields are going to drift, we don't think, uh, very fast, but going to grind, I guess, a little bit higher. Uh, in the
0: months, quarters and even years ahead. Yeah, that's very consistent with the conversation we had back in uh, late last year when we were talking about the outlook for the year ahead. And I think um, the hard thing for investors to get their heads around, uh, and, and we spend a lot of time explaining it, is that these big movements in the price of bonds are not because of credit events. Like you say, if you can't count on getting your money back from a US 30-year Treasury, there's not much you can count on in this uh, in this investment world. Um, but nonetheless, um, a 30% price move is, is normally what we'd associate with a bond that was in dire straits for some company that was quite a worry. But these are interest rate adjustments. So... Um, It's one of those things that uh, I think advisors and people like me will continue to be busy with over the year ahead to understand what's driving these. But, hey, you touched on inflation, um, and I think that's the other part of this picture, is that people are worried about the outlook for growth, and that's understandable when they see things like COVID and Ukraine, but central banks are clearly more worried about the outlook for inflation and we're seeing some pretty nasty numbers coming out oil isn't helping right now but beyond that spike the view that this is transitory that we talked about probably 12 well six months ago uh, doesn't seem to resonate with many now what are your latest thoughts on inflation for the year ahead and 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 i'll 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 start with new zealand we're thinking that it's going to peak at over seven seven percent over the next quarter or so um, so what are your thoughts about inflation around the world and, 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 and how long the spike we're seeing uh, may last?
1: So I think um, uh, although the current very, very high levels of inflation of course uh, linked to the uh, situation in Ukraine and so forth, uh, that's unlikely to persist. So we, we should probably see inflation uh, drift down over the next 6 to 12 months, uh, but it's probably going to settle at a level uh, somewhat higher than we've been used to over the last uh, 10 or 20 years or so uh, and that's being driven by a, a few factors uh, including uh, uh chinese labor force is going negative right so there has been hundreds of millions of workers added to the labor force over the last uh, few decades that's going into reverse the energy transition is going to cost some money so that's probably somewhat inflationary and then more broadly i think we are seeing uh, something of a uh, a localization of uh Supply chains as they want to become more resilient, and the flip side of that is less efficient, which again should speak to a kind of persistent inflationary uh, uh, impulse. So, when I throw that all in the mix, uh, we end up with inflation uh, to come to your direct question. It's not going to persist, it's almost mathematically impossible, is a strong word, but it's very hard for inflation to persist at the current super high levels for a long time, uh, clearly for some time, and that's very uncomfortable, but should drift down but settle at a level which is higher than we've been used to uh, for the reasons that I've mentioned. Key to uh, inflation coming down over the next uh, several quarters, global inflation, I guess I'm talking about here, uh, is actually more and more economies, countries uh, being able to open up as as COVID becomes less restrictive, at least in an economic uh, sense, and that should allow uh, supply chains to normalise, more goods to flow more easily all over the world. Uh, and that should be a, a fairly significant, actually, uh, disinflationary driver helping uh, alleviate the really high levels uh, right now uh, to, to to come down somewhat. But again, just to stress this because it's important, uh, inflation, we think at BlackRock is going to settle at a level which is, uh, as I say, probably higher than we've got used to over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, and that has very meaningful implications uh, frankly, for everything, whether you're a central banker setting policy, whether you're a consumer at the uh, the shops buying your, uh, your weekly basket, uh, or as investors, uh, when we're thinking about the portfolio, all of us are going to need to be quite uh, thoughtful about how we are resilient uh, to inflation, uh, because as I say, even though it's going to come down somewhat, it's not going to disappear. And in fact, it's going to settle at a level a bit higher uh, for the reasons I've mentioned than we've probably got used to uh, over the last decade or two.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a remarkable transition from inflation being too low, um, to suddenly looking way more like the inflation we worried about. Um, certainly in the um the period of time that I was studying in the early years of my career, and I think um at the risk of jumping to a conclusion, uh, a comment you made there about this being the first time that some people have seen it is interesting. Another thing we get a question asked a lot, why don't I just sit on the sidelines and do nothing for a couple of years? Inflation at the moment is just highlighting the huge opportunity cost of doing that because uh, if you sat on the sidelines now, well, you will have less purchasing power in six months with the rate that these prices are going up without a doubt. And so, uh, to a certain extent, the inflation environment that we're talking about leads into people just needing to think really hard about their long-term goals uh, and be prepared to put up with some volatility uh, in order to get there because, because cash is just not getting there. And it's even worse now with, um, with these higher inflation rates. Whereas a, a few years ago, even though our term deposit rates were at record lows, the actual after-tax, after-inflation return that folk were getting was actually really high. Uh, But those days uh, are over, firstly because rates continued to get lower until recently, and now as quick as rates have uh, started rising on those conservative investments like term deposits, inflation's just galloped ahead of them. So now, for example, you can get a five-year term deposit at around 3% here in New Zealand, but with an inflation forecast of twice that for the next twelve months, it's not a it's not a great deal. So uh, the bottom line here and and overseas, I think that uh, that we agree on is that central banks um, will be worried about that more than anything else. And the question that we've touched on is just how how high do they go to try and get inflation back into cheque? And and we're thinking the Reserve Bank's still got a lot of work to do, and and likewise the Fed clearly signalled that today. Hey, but um, let's move on from inflation to something a a little bit more positive, hopefully, certainly at a personal level, uh, and that's uh, COVID and economies reopening. It's definitely happening here in New Zealand, and on a personal note, as I've told you off this podcast, my brother arrives home from Australia today and I'm collecting them from the airport in a couple of hours. That'll be the first time I've seen him in a couple of years. I hope you've got uh, similar plans to be able to see a few more people um, and, and friends and family. I know you missed out on, on your Christmas that you are planning. What are you seeing and expecting uh, up in your part of the world in Asia? So is a mixed bag, right? So, so I think just uh, on the broad point, yeah, reopening. Uh, is kind of the mood music. Very
1: interesting to see the Fed actually uh, removed any mention of COVID from their uh, kind of formal remarks. Uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, Ukraine, I guess, is the more uh, pressing subject, but just quite interesting to see the Fed just uh, move forward from COVID after the last two years. It's it's something like over, it seems, uh, at least in the Fed's mind. Reopening globally, by the way, is kind of very good, of course, for economic activity, but also, not to go back to inflation, but should mean some of the supply bottlenecks Uh, actually become less uh, uh, problematic. So actually, weirdly, uh, this growth positive opening, which when people think about growth positive, they tend to think, oh, that must be inflationary. Uh, Not so fast, right? We actually think this reopening should help the supply side, uh, allowing more goods to flow a bit more efficiently, uh, and actually should help the current, as we were just talking about, very high uh, spike that we're seeing uh, come down a little bit over the remainder of the year. Uh, in Asia, you asked me specifically about Asia, uh, a game of two halves, I guess, uh, with uh, with China uh, playing a different game. So I'll just talk uh, quickly about uh, China and their different approach. They are still uh, going for something like zero COVID. Uh, it's not uh, exactly as we would understand zero COVID in, in the West and how we approach it, I guess. Uh, dynamic zero is a phrase that they, uh, they use, which is... Uh, uh, a little bit confusing but it's going to continue i think with uh, targeted localized china would argue very kind of efficient specific specific village by village even building by building can you believe uh, lockdowns but that's going to kind of continue to be the mood music in uh, uh, in china including hong kong so that's that's uh, significant because that's the world's second largest economy and so forth so i think that's worth uh, touching on more broadly in asia you guys are seeing uh, in Australia, here in Singapore, uh, little by little, uh, we are seeing a normalization of, uh, of life, which is great. Uh, we're going to get back to England, uh, me and my family and my guys, for the first time in three years. And given my kids a four, two fives and a six, it's sort of their first trip in a way, right? First trip that hopefully some of them will remember for uh, forever. So uh, we are, we're pumped, as you would expect, uh, uh, around that. It will be a nightmare, let's be clear. We travel very heavy. Um, but it should, when we get there, uh, be uh, be awesome. And, and hopefully that's a story that resonates with loads of people listening here. Hopefully we've all got something that we're pencilling in or even penning in, right, we're committing to, which can be that old thing called fun, right? Remember that? So hopefully more of that yeah. be, uh, would be Ab- fine.
0: Absolutely. Fun and family is something that I think a lot of people have... Uh, been short on so that's uh, that's uh, excellent to hear that you've got some plans there and yeah that mixed um, view in china in particular is interesting because um the reopening, I I agree. Um, in New Zealand's case, uh, one of the obvious things is just the acute labour shortages in some areas that that have often been plugged by people coming um, from overseas to work in New Zealand for um, for a short term or a long term. Maybe uh, people like you pursuing a a, a rugby dream, uh, but but um, also being part of the the labour supply at uh, various jobs. But what about the Chinese restrictions? Is that just going to clog things up on the supply chains from there for a while longer? Um, or how do you how do you see China specifically in their lockdowns impacting some of the some of the restrictions of trade that we've been seeing?
1: I'm not sure my eight months with Auckland University under-19s moved the markets. uh <laughs> moved the markets. I'm uh, <laughs> CTV, but uh, it was a good time. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, it's, um, it's important. China, if anything, has become more central to the world's supply chains uh, over the last couple of years. So, so you know, going back to uh, Trump and America first and uh, all of that stuff, uh, so far... China has, uh, again, repeat, become, if anything, more important, right? It's become more central uh, to uh, global supply chains. So clearly, China being uh, locked down and potentially, I mean, let's see, Omicron, of course, is very transmissible. Vaccination status in China is uh, unclear. So, of course, I think this is a, a critical unknown, right? we To be honest, you, you've got to give China some credit. They have done an astonishing job with the 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 effective efficient lockdown so far using methods which maybe would be harder to, to bring about in uh, Western countries so so there's that on one side of the ledger on the other side of the ledger you know Omicron is is infamously unbelievably infectious and, and therefore you could see it you could see it infecting people right so I think this is uh, like a key downside risk for, uh, for for the world frankly obviously for China directly but this is really worth watching because it's happening kind of right now right we've had Omicron cases really pick up uh, uh, to the low thousands in China, which is a very, high, very, very high number by, by China standards. So clearly, you know, what we know about Omicron is that could become wildfire, right, very fast, or mm. China can continue to surprise us with how, you know, how good a job they do at, uh, at restricting it. So that, I think, we'll see one way or the other over the next uh, couple of weeks. And, and frankly, it seems to be either way, like if they get control of it or don't, is very important for...
0: Uh, uh, not just for China, but for supply chains and and for risk more uh, more broadly. So that's uh, that's definitely one thing that we'll be keeping an eye on. And let's turn to Europe and and the Ukraine developments. And you and I are both uh, economists rather than military strategists, and uh, I certainly don't claim to have any expertise on the Russian securities market. But uh, I do know that. Um, From my career that goes back into the 90s, uh, things that go on in Russia can end up flowing around all the way to this part of the world. In my case back then, I was working at Bankers Trust happily as a graduate, and I thought that that was the best thing since uh, sliced bread, but I didn't know that the Russian um, debt crisis was gonna be the beginning of a bunch of changes for for that company uh, due to their exposure. So even though Russia's such a tiny part of trade for New Zealand, we've always got to worry about contagion and and how these things can flow on what's your take on how serious the sanctions are the implications of a russian debt default if that's what's uh going to happen and, and some broader themes that you're thinking about in in your role
1: i think it's pretty serious i mean th- this is uh unprecedented in modern financial history that a central bank's reserves can be disappeared right this is this is new And very interesting and important, I would suspect there will be some quite uh, agitated conversations at very high levels in many countries all over the world uh, assessing what do we think about that, guys? Because it's not, I think it's non-trivial. So implications, it seems to me, are a potential uh, more impetus for trying to develop uh, more resilience around uh, financial independence, right? So moving away from dollar-based uh, payment systems, SWIFT and all of that, which is hard, by the way. That's not easy to do, but I would think the impetus is, uh, is only greater. So the broad point I would make is uh, I think we're seeing across so many different dimensions, energy, uh, labor force, migration, uh, and maybe even, it sounds prosaic, but it's very important, like financial payment systems and how markets actually work is a localization. Like we're seeing things come home, be onshored, uh, including maybe uh, payment systems and even capital markets. So you know, China has got some shares listed in America, so-called ADRs. Uh, they have been under a lot of pressure because there's a sense that the American regulator maybe is uh, not comfortable with having these Chinese shares listed in America. So maybe they need to go home, right? Let's see. that, that There's a lot of uncertainty there. But the broad thought, I think, is uh, Russia and the sanctions is another... Um, I suppose, example of uh, the globalized system not being as resilient as we might've thought just a year or two ago, right? and things we thought to be obviously true uh, are not true. So, so that's, that's significant. And as I say, I, I think it's, you know, whether you're the German chancellor thinking about dependence on r- Russian hydrocarbons or the head of a financial system of a major country, maybe not on great terms with America, how comfortable are you being dependent on SWIFT is a, you know, totally different, but the same kind of thought in terms of moving towards a more resilient, uh, and the ultimate, I think, of resilience is doing it yourself, right? So, so for me, one of the big things is going to be um, deliberately uh, having less efficient but more resilient supply chains, financial systems, and so forth. So it sounds weird that you would choose less efficiency, but if it means you can rely on it, you can guarantee it'll be there tomorrow. Maybe that's a trade-off that more and more uh, countries are going to be uh, not just willing to make, but actually anxious to make, because the downside of being vulnerable looks like it's pretty, uh, pretty acute as, uh, as. Uh uh, certain countries have found out over the last uh, couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's probably really no comfort for investors. But uh, the reality is, this is not the first time that that people like you and me have had to sit round uh, wondering about what some of the second and third round of effects are going to be of 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 some of these events. And there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts at the moment. And right now, the impact on most people seeing here beyond the human tragedy, of course, is, uh, is extremely high fuel prices, which is a, uh, a big tax on a uh, energy importer such as New Zealanders, and, uh, and investors are seeing it fire the weakness in share markets. And it just seems that this is going to be something we... Um, I have to put up with and just watch over the coming months. But as I was saying, it's not the first time. And in fact, it seems to be one of those things that comes along every year or two that uh, the world gets very complicated. And and we have these amazing interactions between financial markets, trade and and investments. So what are you gonna be watching over the coming months? And and building on that, what do you think investors should be focusing on over the coming months? Well, so what I'm focused on
1: um, I mean, many things, obviously, CTB, as you well understand, but I'll, I'll pick one. It's, uh, it's COVID reopening, meaning supply side can normalize. So that's a highfalutin way of saying factories open, port congestion gets a bit eased, and that should see inflation come down, actually. So not right now, but that should be the mood music over the next 6-12 uh, months, let's say. Supply getting easier, meaning inflation can come down. Uh, meaning, uh, as I started with, uh, maybe the Fed doesn't need to do as many uh, hikes as they currently think they uh, they need to do. So I think that's kind of a huge deal. I know it sounds like really boring economics stuff, supply side, blah blah, but I think it is really, when you work it through, I think it's kind of uh, uh, important. So, so in terms of what should we do, we should be doing about it. Again, um, inflation probably won't persist at the very high levels, but is likely to hang around for some years to come. And that means uh, when you think about the portfolio, being not invested is very risky. It, it, again, like uh, I don't want to lecture anyone here, but I think it would be a mistake to think of being on the sidelines as being safe. You, you are, you, fair enough, you might miss the vagaries of the market over a week or two. But if inflation is going to be some percent, then you're, if you're on the sidelines in cash, you are guaranteed to lose purchasing power over the next one, two, three, five years. Maybe that's OK with you, but, but you should just frame it appropriately and understand that. So for us, real assets uh, and the importance of making the portfolio resilient in general, obviously, but specific to higher inflation than we've been used to over the last uh, couple of decades, that is uh, central to how we're thinking about uh, portfolio construction.
0: Yeah, I think there's some really good points for investors there. And the one that, that I really like that you've made is that um, the COVID reopening, um, which is positive for growth, is actually also positive for helping with these inflation pressures. That's a, that's a, that's a really important theme you know China's a big unknown uh, but as you've mentioned they um they have been successful in their in their strategies that perhaps wouldn't even be able to be rolled out in other parts of the world for all sorts of of reasons and and Ukraine is just one of those events that we just have to watch and and see un, unfold but uh, I think the um there's, there's some real things for investors to focus on. And, you know, as a parting comment about our view that we often come back to about not trying to time the markets, uh, you know, the, the, the Fed got underway. There's no uh, no doubt that they're raising rates when they actually deliver the first hike and then say, we're going to do plenty more. But the interesting thing I think for investors is, is share markets actually had a fantastic day today. Now up two to four percent in the state, so that's why we don't get too cute to try and be on the sidelines and think that we can pick the good days and the and and the bad days. And we certainly got a good lesson in that two years ago as well. So. Hopefully our investors have found this uh, useful to listen to. I've certainly got heaps of uh, interesting insights from uh, talking with you today and I'll look forward to checking in for the next one soon and maybe these borders reopening mean we can get into the booth in Ponsonby and actually record something face to face would be a quite nice a quite nice goal for the year ahead.
1: Go ponies. Yeah, yeah, no. Look forward to it, CCP in uh, all in good time and hopefully that's right. Hopefully we're coming back to a a fun centric world that would be uh, that would be great.
0: Thanks for listening to the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on a future show, get in touch at podcasts at asb.co.nz. BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited is a wholly owned subsidiary of BlackRock Incorporated. BlackRock Incorporated is based in the United States and is a leading global provider of investment management services, with over US $10 trillion in assets under management as at the 31st of December 2021.